Well, welcome everyone. It's good to see you this weekend and uh, glad that you're here. I'm very exhausted from the football game yesterday. <laughs> I've been rejoicing in Michigan's loss all night long. And you might, Jeff, Pastor Jeff, you feel that way? Dr. Bogue, is that how you feel? Yes, it is. It is how I feel. I am that shallow and I love it. And my second favorite team, Auburn, I praise God for them too. And uh, I wanted Ezra and the band to do Hang On Sloopy, and they wouldn't. I thought it was a worshipful experience, and he thought I was shallow. And now we need a pastor for worship art, so <laughs> let, me, let me know if you can sing again. It's great to be here, and it's, uh, it's great to start Christmas season off, and so I'm excited about that, and I'm excited about uh, kind of our time together and uh, excited about the conversation that we're going to have over these next few weeks. Excited about the opportunity. Uh, it's, Christmas is a great, and I encourage you guys to do this, Christmas is a great opportunity to, to talk about the goodness of God. It's, it's the, probably the least offensive time of the year. Nobody's really turned off by that because Jesus and his arrival and the gospel that's tied into that is kind of all around us all the time. And so I encourage you to do that. You can invite folks to church or just have a conversation and, and uh, tell people Jesus loves them. It's a great thing to do, and it's great, great news. It's kind of the point of Christmas. And that's really what we're going to be doing here uh, over this Christmas season is we're, we're kind of putting together an epic conversation. We're going to go all the way back to the, the root of humanity and talk about why Christmas was created. We're going to talk about that this weekend. And then we're going to kind of, how we tend to do, we tend to pull everything down into like our personal lives. So we'll, we'll talk about that kind of in a cultural level next weekend. And then the weekend after that, we'll kind of land that in our personal lives. And then, and then the Christmas services uh, that will come up are just fantastic. I'm excited about where those are going. So these are all great times to kind of partner together, uh, to invite friends and family, and to kind of soak in uh, this story for, for yourself. And so I'm excited about it. If we're going to kind of do that and kind of get our, our hands and our head around Christmas a little bit <clears throat> in a fresh way, I think it's important and good and interesting to go back to the creation of Christmas itself. Why was it created? And what was God doing? What was he responding to in that, in that whole process? And so I want to do that today. I want to take you back to the beginning. And I, I want to show you... Um, a character quality of God, what God is like, how God functions, how he expresses himself. And we talk a lot about at Grace here that if, if we have the wrong view of God, we misinterpret what he's doing in our lives. We misinterpret the Bible even. If we view God as an inspecting God or disappointed God or distant God, we'll, we'll respond to him in ways that he isn't even asking for. And the same thing is true when you talk about big narratives like Christmas, if we misunderstand or misread the heart of God, even in the creation of Christmas, then we respond to Christmas incorrectly because we're responding to something that God really wasn't doing anyways. And probably the most common response, it's kind of the cliche one, but the most common response to Christmas, the most common kind of misresponse to it, is that we approach it on too shallow of a level, Right? And so we, we say Merry Christmas and it's Happy Holidays and it's, it's food and credit cards and gifts and family tradition and warm fuzzy stuff and 
and a guy with an eating disorder that breaks and enters into our homes once a year and all those kind of things. If you think about most of the Santa stuff, it gets creepy. He's watching you, he's checking, and then he breaks into your home. I'm just saying, just saying, any other situation, there would be arrest involved. So it's, it's all that kind of stuff. And hear me say this, I'm not one to speak against that. I, I don't think any of that stuff is terrible necessarily. Some stuff is obviously no good, like all the credit card and, and the debt and stuff like that. But most of it's benign and fun and has to do with the celebration. <clears throat> so at my house, you know, we celebrate those things. We love getting the family together. We have Christmas lists. I want a new boat, you know, just a little 30-footer. And so, it, you know, this that kind of stuff. And so it's fine. And, and Santa comes to our house on Christmas Eve, especially when the kids were little, that happened. And so I'm not going to push against that stuff very hard. And that's kind of our way here at Grace. We're not real guilt-trippy about stuff. What I do want to show you, though, is there's, when we approach Christmas on that level, we actually rob ourselves of some really amazing things. And we rob ourselves of, of something that it goes deeper, satisfies the soul. It, it, we substitute happiness out for joy. We substitute moments out for satisfaction. And when you dig into the Christmas narrative and understand why it was created, you can recapture all that again. And that's what I want to show you. So let me show you something about God so that we perceive him correctly. And if we perceive him correctly and understand him correctly, it kind of leads to all this wonderful stuff I'm, I'm talking about. So grab your Bibles if you got them. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, there's somewhere in the chairs. It will be page number 1. And those Bibles, right after all the copyright information, you'll get to page number one. And if you're electronic, we use the version app, Y-O-U version. And you can open that up, hit live, and our zip code is 44333. And uh, the, the scriptures, as well as any notes, you can take them there. You can text us off of that, all kinds of stuff. It's a pretty cool app if you want to use this. So one of the things that's true of God, Genesis chapter one is the very first exposure that we get to God in the Bible. So it's kind of God's first impression, so to say, okay? And so when we read Genesis chapter one, God gives his first impression. And the first thing, it's, it's really fascinating, the first thing that God tells us about himself is that he is a loving creator. Isn't that interesting? He's a loving creator. The very first thing he tells us about himself and so one of the attributes of God, if you were going to look and say, what is the core of God? One of the core things that we would need to understand or want to understand about God is that he's a creator. It's his nature to create, all right? And then when you get into Genesis chapter one, the first glimpse we get of God is him doing that. So let me show you this a little bit. We're going to kind of move through the whole chapter one real quick. And I want you to catch these words. I want you to catch the words create, created, creator. And I want you to catch the words good, okay, good. So look at it, verse one, chapter one, Genesis, in the beginning, God created, there's one, in the, uh, created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the, of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering above the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So God created, and it was good, okay? And he called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, and that was the first day. 
And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault, separated the water under the vault from the water above the vault. And it was so, and God called the vault sky, and there was evening, there was morning the second day. And God said then, verse 9, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so, and God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters, and he called them seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land to bear uh, fruit with seed in it according to its, uh, its various kinds. And it was so, dropped down to the end of verse 12, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, that was the third day. And God said, then let the lights be in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, days, and years. And let them, uh, let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God sent the, uh, set them uh, on the earth to govern the day and the night and separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly across the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing in which the waters teem and that moves about in it according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind uh, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals according to its kind. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. In verse 25, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and uh, said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And you see, this is, a, this is the, the entry of God into our consciousness, Right? And so this is God's first revelation of himself. And the first thing that he really puts on display, the first part of his character, is that he is a loving creator. Think of God as an artist, right? And so God creates like an artist would create. And the Bible says that as God creates, you see his heart, you see his mind, you see his character. It's all reflected in the creation, that's what the book of Romans says. The book of Romans says that, that creation itself cries out to the glory of God. That when I look at the beauty of the earth or I look at the complexity of a human being and how we're physical and spiritual and emotional and all that comes into a balance and I look at the miracles of life that there's a creator, God invented he invented the day and the night. He invented the whale. He invented the shark. He invented the buffalo. He invented the human being. And he created us with our complexity. 
and he would look at that as he would think it and imagine it and then speak it into creation. He would step back and he'd be like, that's good. That's really, really good. And now, day and night, oh, this day and night thing, that's going to work out really nice. It's going to work out really nice. Except for people in Akron who never actually see the greater light, uh, it's going to work out really, really nice, right? <clears throat> and then he went so far as to do this. Hey, you know what? Of all the creation, let's make a centerpiece of creation that actually reflects us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let, let's make man in our image, and let's make him to have relationships, and let's make him to, to worship and respond to us so that when you look at humanity, you get a glimpse of what we, the Godhead, is like. And God took all those pieces, and he arranged them, and he put them together, and then he stepped back, and he said, this, this is very good, very good. If you take that term very good from the Hebrew and pull it into the English, and put it into a, ma- uh, a modern-day vernacular, we would say this. God stepped back and he said, this is perfect. This is perfect. What I imagined is perfectly reflected in my creation. What I hoped for is perfectly reflected in my creation. What was in my mind and in my heart I was able to kind of bring out of my fingertips, like an artist who painted his masterpiece, it it is a perfect reflection of me. If you want to know me, if you want to understand me, if you want to get a glimpse of me, look at my creation. This is very good. And God created. And creation worked in perfect harmony, right? So mankind had a perfect relationship with each other. Adam and Eve got along wonderfully. Mankind had a perfect relationship with God. There was no barrier between God and man. There was no mystery between God and man. Mankind even got along perfectly with the creation itself, with the earth. So animals and human beings did not live at tension with each other. They lived perfectly in the garden. You could pet the rhino, you could, you could scratch the ears of the lion. There was no animosity between even animal and human. And then the fruits and the vegetables all perfectly sustained this ecosystem, right? It was perfection. I look at the systems. I look at the mechanisms. I look at the, bio, the biology, the anatomy. I look at the astronomy. Everything is very good, perfect. And this is exactly what I imagined, what I wanted my heart and my mind expressed on the void, formless canvas of creation, right? Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that something dynamic happened because this is not the reality of our existence, correctly? Right? Isn't that correct? Right? So if you go to pet a rhino now, it's not going to work out well for you. Right? There's a lot of rhino deaths happening here in northern East Ohio. So you got, they're on the rampage, they're everywhere. And so, right, so, and we don't have, you don't have a perfect marriage, right? Amen? Hallelujah? Yeah, that's what I thought. Right? So, and then creation has fallen. Things like wolverines were created, right? And so it's like, so what, what happened, something dramatic happened between perfection and our reality. And if you know the story, what happened was the introduction of sin, and the Bible gives an account of that as well. 
So Genesis chapter one and two is a, an accounting and a reaccounting with more detail of what perfection looked like. Genesis chapter three tells us about what the Bible terms the fall of man out of relationship with God and into sin. So God created this perfect environment for Adam and Eve to exist within. There was one prohibition. God said, there's a tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. Why was it there? Why was that a big deal to God? That's kind of another conversation. Maybe we'll tackle another time. But for this weekend, the simple version is God said, no, don't. Don't eat of that. Adam and Eve knew this. They understood this. And so did Satan, the enemy of God. And Satan schemed and he wormed and he purposely and intentionally introduced temptation into the reality of the perfection that mankind lived within. Verse 1, chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said, it's not the snake, it's Satan that's in it, right? Satan said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that if you eat from, uh, from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And something brand new was introduced into the reality of humanity. This is the first time ever in humanity where, ready, the heart of the creator was brought into question. The great temptation of Adam and Eve was not to eat a fruit. The great temptation of Adam and Eve was not that they wanted to be gods and God didn't want them to be. They, I, don't, I don't believe they even understood things on that level. The great temptation of Adam and Eve was to question the validity and the motives and the purity of God's love for them. Satan comes and he says to Adam and Eve, <clears throat> listen, you think maybe God's got an ulterior motive? Hey, listen, you ever think about this? Maybe God's keeping something from you? Hey, 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 you ever think about this? Maybe God doesn't love you as much as he says he loves you. Hey, you ever think about this? Maybe God didn't create everything for you. Maybe God isn't who God says that he is. And the great temptation had nothing to do with fruit. That was just a vehicle. The great temptation was, hey, how about we question the heart in the mind of our loving creator. And Eve did that. She brought it into question, I believe, without realizing the full ramifications of what she was doing or even why she was doing it. And what did she do? Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then their eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and, the, and his wife heard the sound of the Lord who was walking in the garden in the cool of the morning and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And here's another first. For the first time ever in the history of humanity, humanity runs from God instead of to God. That had never happened. They ran from God instead of to God. Human beings weren't created to run from God. 
Human beings weren't created to hide from God. But now perfection has been interfered with. It has been tainted. It has been scarred. And the balance is kind of thrown off. And now human beings are doing things they've never done before. They never question the, the, the purity of the intention of the heart of the creator. And they never ran away from him, ever. In fact, you hear God himself question this. They went and they hid in the trees. God called out to them, verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Great job, Adam. Way to be a champ, right? Throw your wife under the bus and have it written down in the Bible. That's fantastic, okay? For the first time ever, the heart of the creator is questioned. For the first time ever, humanity runs from God instead of to God. God says, where are you? I'm hiding. Why? Because I'm naked. Who told you that? The innocence of mankind has been stripped away. They never before even thought of themselves as being naked. No more than a dog would think of themselves as being naked. It's like, what, what are you talking about? I'm naked. There's shame. There's that. Wait a minute. Did you question my heart? Has innocence been lost? Has sin been introduced? Has the masterpiece, has perfection somehow been tainted? Then the Lord God said to the woman, verse 13, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And guys, what you see here in this breath from God is you see the heart of God break. Eve, what have you done? What have you done? I believe that God speaks to Eve, and I believe Eve doesn't even understand the magnitude of what has just happened. Because her answer to God is fascinating. She doesn't say, God, I questioned your heart. She doesn't say, I just introduced sin into the world. She doesn't say, I just caused all of creation to fall. What's she say? I just ate. And a loving creator looks at his creation, understanding full well the magnitude of what has just happened. And his response to Eve is not one of anger or spite. It's not a slap in the wrist and it's not a bolt of lightning. It's grief. Eve, what have you done? Do you understand, Eve, that paradise is lost? Innocence is forever gone. That our perfect interaction with each other is now tainted and broken. That everything, I produced all of this for your joy and your pleasure and your benefit, and it's gone. You you have now introduced sorrow and struggle and pain and death. You, you have <clears throat> created a wall between, between you and Eve. What, what have you done? Now, it's interesting. In about two sentences, you get this strong glimpse into what God's like. Because you have a creator God who created perfection. And he looks at his creation who has now sinned willfully. Eve did it on purpose. 
So she rebelled against God, and so did Adam. He has really no excuse. He wasn't even deceived. He was just weak. And so they introduce dysfunction. They introduce sin into their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. God looks at that creation who was deceived and who fell, but whom he loves, and his, his reaction to them is not one of spite or vengeance. His reaction is one of grief. What have you done? Oh, my Oh my, you guys don't understand. You have, you have altered your lives. And there, there's no way to put paradise back the way that it was. Perfection cannot be reclaimed. What have you done? The next sentence or the next phrase that comes out of God's mouth is he then looks at the serpent. He looks at Satan. And you start to get a glimpse of God's justice and his righteousness and his wrath toward the one who has caused this to happen. The woman said, the serpent see me, and I ate, verse 14. Next sentence. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals, you will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life. It's fascinating what God says. He looks at Satan and he says, because you have done this. He doesn't say, because you caused this to happen or because you were a naughty snake, or because Satan, oh, Satan. He doesn't look at it, and he doesn't say, Satan, because you're so slippery, or because you're a deceiver, because you're, he looks at Satan, he says, because you have done this. That word done is a fascinating word because it talks, it speaks of willful intention, because you willfully, purposely, intentionally, vindictively did this. Because you schemed, because you plotted, because you executed, because you waited like a lion waiting for prey until it was the right time to spring. See, you guys, this whole interaction between the devil and Eve was not something that happened spontaneously. This wasn't just Eve out in the garden and I bumped into a snake and I'm starving, I ate the apple. That's not what happened. This was a willful, purposeful, timed, planned out scheme of the devil, the one who hates God and hates all that God loves. And so over time, Satan would study. He would look. He would watch. He would understand. He would scheme. He would comprehend the weaknesses, the strengths, the moments that they're open, the moments that they're closed. And when God was not in the garden with them and they were alone and Eve was in a moment when she was alone and Adam had his guard down, he skillfully and willfully and vindictively moved in and introduced the question of, is God's heart what you think it is? And put in motion a temptation that Adam and Eve were susceptible to and fell to in that moment. And there was no accident. There was no spontaneity. It was a willful, purposeful, intentional decision. And God looked at the devil and said, because of what you have done. You did this. You attacked. You pushed. You drove after. You, with hatred, lashed out against what I love so passionately. So you see this picture of God that's sorrowful. Eve, what have you done? And then righteous injustice, Satan, because of what you have done. And you see God move into a righteous judgment 
from himself to the one who willfully attacked and tainted and destroyed creation. Look on down in the passage just a little bit. Verse 15, because of what you have done, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Fascinating word, the word enmity. The word enmity is an old English word that means opposition, okay? Some of your newer translations of the Bible, some of your Bibles will say enmity. Some of the newer translations of the Bible will say hostility. I will put hostility between you and the woman, her offspring, your offspring. What God is looking at is he's looking at Satan. He's saying, listen, because of what you have done purposely, willfully, I'm going to cause a state of war, of opposition to exist between you and me, between the children of God and the children of the devil that John, the apostle John, labels those who are outside of Christ. There is a state of hostility between us because you have attacked what I love and what I cherish and what was perfect and you have destroyed it. Now here's the deal with that word enmity. There is no way to pull that word out of the Hebrew. That's what we translate the English Bible out of, ultimately, is the Hebrew, right? There's no way to pull the concept that God is striking at from Hebrew into English with one word. There's no single English word that would capture what God is saying to Satan right here. So the word enmity doesn't really capture it. The word hostility doesn't really capture it. It's a translated word that you have to describe. It's not one that I can just say. So this is the idea. The idea of enmity is this. God is saying, Satan, because of what you have done, there is, the, there is enmity. Enmity is the quality of being an enemy, the opposite of friendship, ill will, hatred, unfriendly disposition, malice. It expresses more than aversion and differs from displeasure in denoting a fixed or rooted hatred. The idea is this, that Satan, because of what you have done, whatever I am, Satan is the opposite of. So the Bible says that the byproducts or the, the fruit of having God in our life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Galatians chapter five. If you think of those things, enmity, Satan, is the opposite of those things. So as much as God is love, to the degree and the passion that God is loving, Satan is hateful. As deeply as God loves you, Satan hates you. It's the quality of hatred. It's the state of opposition. As much as God wants to introduce peace into your life, Satan wants to introduce discord into your life. As much as God cheers for your relationships, Satan attacks and hates them. As much as God would want us to have joy, joy in our hearts, Satan wants us to have sorrow and grief. As gentle as God is, as gentle and kind as he is, Satan is cruel and violent to us. See, as patient as God is, Satan is accusing to us. There is enmity. It is the quality, it is the nature, it's the DNA of the relationship that Satan has with Christ because of what he has done. You have attacked what I love. You have with violence pursued what is the reflection and the quality and the essence of my heart. The very part of creation I made in my image is the very part of creation 
you violently went after. And it is into this state now that the Bible teaches us that human beings are born. We are created to be in perfect relationship with God, but instead we're born into enmity with God because sin is a part of the human experience. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. He says that unbelievers have enmity with God. We have a state of opposition with God. This is what the Apostle John says in his book of John, where he says unbelievers are children of the devil. I am an enemy of God, the Bible says. I'm not just a, a good guy that can't quite get my act together. No, no, no. It's deeper than that. In fact, the psalmist David says, my heart is so wicked, I can't even understand it. My opposition to God is so much in my DNA that I don't even understand how I oppose God. Enmity exists. There is a war. There is a division. There is a fissure. And it cannot be bridged. And guys, when we think about our salvation and we think about our need for a savior, it's to this degree that we must comprehend that. Or we approach the Savior on too shallow of a level. I, I think a lot of times we, we approach God and we think of sin kind of in this light. Let, let's say that this is, this is uh, perfection. God really like blue. <laughs> so this is perfection. This is creation. This is humanity. This is relationship. This is, it is good. It is perfection. When we think about sin, we tend to think this, that there was perfection, and then, you know, the devil messed it up. You know, he introduced some sin into our life, and that's a real bummer. I mean, oh, man, if there was no sin, then having kids would be easy. If there was no sin, then we wouldn't have to tell you with the girl. Oh, man, right? It's kind of how we view sin. And we view it in our own lives that way. You're a sinner. Well, I know I'm a sinner, but no, no, you're a sinner. Now, I'm a good guy. I just got some problems. Like, I got, I got some lust in my life. You know, that's a bummer. I got some greed in my life. You know, I, sh- I shouldn't be, that's my new year resolution to be less greedy. I'm pretty selfish with my life. You know, I know everybody, everybody struggles with some selfishness. Everybody's a little bit self-centered, right? And we tend to think of sin this way. Me too, by the way. I will oftentimes approach my sin <clears throat> on much too shallow of a level. And so I look and say, well, here was perfection, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then Genesis chapter 3 came in, and boy, we really got messed up, and now we got some, I got some weak points in my life, I got some issues, I got my vices. Thank God there's a Savior, praise God for Christmas. And we'll approach it as if God's intention and design in our relationship with God got a little bit messed up or it's just a little bit off kilter and I I should go to church and maybe put 50 bucks in the basket and straighten that out. It's fascinating to remember and to look at how our Heavenly Father sees it. God looks at the introduction of sin into his perfection and his heart grieves. Eve have you done? And then he looks at the one who introduced it. Satan, because of what you have done, we're at war. 
I will not stand for this. I cannot, I will not surrender or yield the creation to you. And guys, Satan didn't just come and mess up creation a little bit. Satan didn't just come and be a bad little devil, you naughty little devil, you bad devil. Satan is not red horned pitchfork Halloween costume. He's not, he's not the bad side of our conscience with the angel on the other shoulder. That's not what happened. Satan didn't just mess up sin or, or mess up the world or flaw it a little bit or chip it some. God looks and says, what have you done? You've taken my perfection. You've taken my heart. You've taken what represents me. And you with willful malice, you with intention, with forethought, you planned and you schemed and you designed and you broke in and you waited and you waited to attack and to pronounce and you took it and you interacted with his creation and you didn't mess it up or scarred a little bit. What you did was you shattered it. And it's gone. Eve, what have you done? And you, because of what you have done, there's enmity now. You have taken that which I loved, and it's gone. And I will not stand for it. And it's in this moment that the rest of the sentence is spoken. Eve, what have you done? And Satan, because of what you have done, that God makes this promise at the end of verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is Jesus that God is talking about. You, Satan, were at war. And my offspring, my son Jesus, will be at war with you. You warring against those that I love and him warring for them to rescue them and to save them. And there will be a day that you will strike his heel, you will bruise him. He will be beaten. He will be spat upon. A crown of thorns will be shoved on his head. He will be crucified. He will bleed out and you will bruise him and for about three days enjoy yourself because he's going to rise again from the dead and he's going to crush your head. There's a war and I'm going to win it. And that phrase right there is called the proto-evangelum. It's a Latin word. It means the prototype of the gospel. It's the first declaration of the good news of Jesus, the proto-evangelum. Another thing that you could title it, are you ready? You could say it's the creation of Christmas. Right there, when all is lost, when hope is gone, not just messed up, destroyed, fallen, ruined, God looks with compassion on Eve and looks with disdain on the evil one and introduces a plan of redemption. Because I created humanity to interact with me. And Eve, what have you done? 
What have you done, Satan? And what will I do? I will give my son. I will proclaim good news of great joy. That's to be to all the people because a Savior is born. It's Christ the Lord. The very beginning, God instituted the plan. And the plan is Jesus. And he runs right through the manger and right to the cross. When Christmas is just warm and fuzzy, enjoy warm and fuzzy. I like it too. But I rob myself. You rob yourself if that's all that it is. If we look and say, isn't that neat that Jesus is in the manger with a, with a, with a donkey and a camel and three sheep and some very well-dressed shepherds. If that's what Christmas is, it's not that there's something horrifically wrong with that picture. It's that I rob myself of the joy of knowing I was a shattered creation rescued by my creator God. This is not a guilt trip. This truth is to be responded to with gratitude. Oh, God. God, I celebrate my rescue. I, I celebrate your love. I, I celebrate the victory. But Christmas wasn't birthed out of warmth. Christmas was birthed out of violence. Christmas wasn't wasn't birthed out of holly jolliness. It was birthed out of hopelessness. Why was it created? Because this is me. This is me. I'm destroyed. But in this state, a state of enmity with God, Jesus died for me. When the Father God looks at the manger, he doesn't seem warm and fuzzy. What he sees is the cross. And Christmas to him is, is not just sleigh bells and reindeer. Christmas to him is the handing over of his son to sin and to death because it's in that that Jesus defines himself as God and crushes the head of the serpent, and through the cross defeats sin and death, or this is the only reality you and I would ever know. That's where hope and joy and proclamation and good, that's what all that's rooted in. It's rooted in my lostness. And the proto-evangelum, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, my Savior. Ask the band to come out.
And as I do, I, I really encourage you to think through a few things with this. Right? First of all, if, you, if you've never seen yourself as this, we're not just people with weaknesses. And we're not just people with vices. We're destroyed. The Bible says we're spiritually dead. I'm destroyed. So if I've never seen myself as this, then I've never interacted with Jesus as the Savior that he is. Because I may not recognize I need that. I'm a good person who wants to get better. Well, coming to church would be a great prescription for that. Honestly, it it would help. I'm a destroyed person who needs to be rebirthed. Well, that's a supernatural act of God. Like, I, I, I can't even begin to think about putting that back together. But God can. He created from dust. He can create from nothing, and he breathes life into me. So, guys, I encourage you, if you've never interacted with God on this level kind of download and own the depth of your sin, I encourage you to do that today, to to pray to Jesus as a savior. Forgive me. Put me back together. Reestablish the relationship with you that I was created to be in. And you can just do that from your heart. You're believing that Jesus is God. You're by faith. You're believing that he raised again from the dead. You're recognizing this mess and asking for a rescue. And that's where our salvation lies. I encourage you to do that. For others of us who have done that already, guys, I, the, the, the cliche of Christmas is it's shallow, right? I, I, I know the mall and the Santa and the credit cards, and I, I got it. What I, what I hope you will do this Christmas season is receive the gift of real joy, joy for the soul. And recognizing that you're destroyed is where that comes from. Because the, the gratitude that God would do this for me and has done it for me, that's why Christmas is such good news. That's why it's such a big deal. And then all the celebration that goes around it is, is, it's fun, it's good, it's fine. But when you get into that root, you, you, you swap out happiness for joy. You swap out getting what you want for receiving the deep satisfaction that you need because you have a creator that the moment, the moment sin was introduced so was Christmas. The gospel was proclaimed in that moment. And you see his passion for you, his love for you. That's why it's good news to all the people. Because there's a savior, there's a God who loves you above all else. So I encourage you to kind of receive things on that level to, to, to anchor your, your Christmas season in this wonderful truth and to gratefully and kind of completely understand and lock on to 
God's great, great love. So would you think about it? Would you pray about it? As you contemplate the creation of Christmas.